Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to this episode of Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we've uh, picked out two books today to discuss. The uh, contemporary author we're going to talk about is Henrietta Goodman. And we're going to talk about her latest collection, All That Held Us. I thought I was writing songs. I thought I was mm. going to be a rock star. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in, in middle school and in high school, I was writing, you know, in class. When I was supposed to be, you know, doing class things, I was writing songs um, that were really poems because I couldn't write music. And our other author is Richard Browdigan. And we're going to focus mainly on a hawkline monster. So this is a kind of an unusual circumstance. We usually pick our own books, but this time... We started, we knew we wanted to talk with uh, Henrietta Goodman, and we asked her who she would like to be paired with, and she surprised us both. <laughs> yeah, in fact, we had chosen Richard Brodigan to be paired with um, Tim Cahill, and uh, she said, well, I'd like to be paired with Richard Brodigan, so... So tell us about your fascination with Richard Brodigan. <laughs> we were both very curious about that choice to be paired with Richard Brodigan. The world's greatest writer. <laughs> I love Richard Brodigan. Yeah. And, um, I mean, part of it, I think, also, you know, like we were talking about before, is, is that, you know, I like both of you. I read him as a very young person. I worked in a bookstore when I first moved to Missoula and, you know, discovered him as a writer with a connection to Montana. So I read, you know five, six, seven of his books and, and, you know, appreciated the way that, um, they were both very dark and very silly. Um, mm. and that's a hard combination to pull off. Um, and those seem to be the sort of, of, you know, if I had to, to point out two qualities, um, those are kind of primary. Um, but what I, in rereading his work as an older person, what I really still like very much is his metaphors and similes. So comparison has always been, it's, it's my favorite literary tool and it's my favorite thing to encounter in other people's writing. So coming across a really perfect and striking comparison is, has this seductive power to me. And so that's what I noticed. So when I was rereading Hawkline Monster, that's that's really what I still think. I, I think the book is, is just delightful. And it's nice to read something that is delightful because so much of my taste in, in fiction and in poetry tends to be fairly dark. So reading... I think it's interesting that you identified that as a factor in his work too because that's really true. It's zany, but there's always this really dark undercurrent of stuff going on and even in some of the titles like the abortion 
<laughs> yeah, well, and it makes sense when you know about his story. Of course, <laughs> there was a lot of darkness underneath there. I I like Richard Brannigan, and I like his pithy little koan type poems. But I remember some critic said to call Richard Browdigan's poetry doggerel is an insult to the canine world. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't think of him really as a poet, really. I mean, I think he was a writer with a poetic sensibility. Right. But I'm, when I think of Browdigan, I think more of his novels, which also are not really novels. That's, he's kind of in his own yeah. category. But if you think of him as a poet, you know, there's very little there in the way of meter or rhyme or... Plus, he didn't really seem to take it all that seriously. I don't know. Maybe... maybe no, that's, that's a really good point. I that's, think that's... He's, and whereas Henrietta is a craftsman. Right. Like, you can tell she really studied what she was doing, and it's very carefully put together, especially this collection where each poem cycles into the next poem with some phrase. I love that about this collection, yeah. So each poem from the each poem starts with a line that is lifted from the poem before it, which I don't know if I've ever seen that before, but um it's kind of like uh what do they call that uh uh Rima? that's not quite right. I can't think. Villanelle maybe. Mm. But uh on a bigger scale like mm. Yeah, and and of course, the the beautiful thing about that in this collection is that um, it helps to create a narrative, which this book really is. It's a it's a story that's made up of all these poems, and it focuses very specifically on her relationship with her mother and an, and an aunt and the men in their lives. Yeah, no, it is an interesting approach to poetry. It's narrative, like it mm-hmm. does tell a story, but not kind of in a novel form, like, um, who's the guy who wrote that long novel that was a poem? Vikram Seth. Oh, yeah. Golden Gate. So, yeah, I, it's funny, because Richard Brodigan was the first writer I ever met, and I became a huge fan of his stuff back then, and I was, you know, in my early 20s. Wow, how did you meet him? That sounds like a great story. <laughs> it is a pretty good story. A friend of mine was, that I knew from high school sort of accidentally got a job working for him for a summer and he didn't even know who he was so we were uh, we were looking him up and trying to figure out who this guy was and of course eventually we realized he was pretty well known in the writing community but we were we were kind of bonehead college kids who didn't know much about the literary world yet anyway his job was basically to go fishing with Brodigan and make sure he had enough whiskey. <laughs> he had a fascinating summer with him, but we, we stopped in to see him one time when we were driving somewhere else. We stopped in at his uh, cabin there in Livingston, and he was incredibly friendly and invited us to join them for dinner. He was actually in the middle of a dinner party. Um, we just stopped in completely uninvited or unexpectedly, so um, I thought it was nice that he made that gesture we didn't stay but um that's great yeah (laughs) yeah i never met him but i have two what i guess one degree of separation stories my friend beef tory was really good friends with him and also with jim harrison and tony Gwynn. 
Um, and then Dobro Dick, who I know through the music world, ah. he and Browdigan were great pals. Oh, uh-huh. our, our friend um, Greg Keeler talks a lot about oh, sure, them. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, wrote a with book the about captain. Him. Yeah, great, great book. If I you, like that book a lot, yeah. The two great books, if you're interested in knowing more about Browdigan, are Waltzing with the Captain by Greg Keeler and Gatz's book, Jubilee Hitchhiker. Yes, yeah. Did like, you read that? I will confess that I have not read it in yeah. its entirety because it is it's like huge. 1,400 pages <laughs> right. long. Yeah. And it's I think he spends six or eight pages just on the bullet itself, you know, entering the skull of oh, Browning wow. when he killed right? himself. Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing book. Huh. But... Um, well, let's talk a little bit about his legacy because, you know, I, I kind of devoured his stuff back then and I, I loved Trout Fishing in America and a couple of the other novels and I read them now and I think, wow, um, you know, I, I think it was probably, for me, it was a, a revelation that you could sort of do whatever you want. And he was, I mean, that's kind of what he became known for, was just being completely random and... Zany. Yeah. Um, yeah, I read him, you know, I discovered him in, in junior high, so I was probably seventh grade. Okay. And found In Watermelon Sugar. Oh. And it just, I don't know, it must be like the experience people have when they read fantasy novels. Like, uh-huh. you're just in this completely different alternative universe... But I liked it because it was kind of hippie and sure. And Helena at that time, there was a lot of um, people like that. We called granolas, you know. Yeah. They yeah. Wore wool skirts and long hair, and I just I loved the whole aesthetic of that book. And then I read all the other novels like you're describing. And uh-huh. I loved them all. Yeah. I did not like Trout Fishing in America. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's that interesting. That one never resonated with me. That was my favorite. And people think of that as definitely his masterpiece. Yeah. But I think of that more as some kind of weird, zany memoir. Ah, uh, okay. And I would love to know, I don't know, maybe we can ask him if we ever get Tom McGuane on this program, but I sense in some of McGuane's early novels, like Panama and 92 in the Shade, some of that same Browdigan zaniness. Mm-hmm. Like, guy living in an airplane. Well, of. yeah, he must have rubbed off on those guys. Oh, yeah. They were all hanging out together. Right. But yeah, you, I I mean, I tried to read Hawkline Monster and I couldn't get through it. It is an odd thing how it has not aged well. It's almost a caricature of itself. Now. Yeah. It's like he maybe pushed the envelope so much that... Right. And this was, I think this must have been a later one, was it? Because it feels like at this point in time, he's he's just throwing stuff out there completely, you know, without much thought or aim like he, it doesn't feel like he's the he plot has. seems really contrived yeah and, but he, what an influence he had on well that. yeah it's interesting too because it's it's such a product of that time like all these women are throwing themselves at the guys <laughs> and and i always loved Browdigan books too you know the, the paperback editions always had a picture of him yeah there was some hot young hippie girl right. who just obviously adored him yeah yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think that has aged well either. No, no, not at all. Then we get to Henrietta, and oh, this just incredibly carefully crafted and beautifully written. You know, it reminds me a lot of Earl Craig's, the conversation we had with Earl in the last episode, where he talked about all the time that he puts into his poems and um, recrafting and redoing and thinking about every... It feels very much the same with this this collection. That's an interesting 
maybe bridge between them because with Earl, you do have that sense of zaniness. Mm -hmm. There is something funny about a lot of his stuff, but it seems way more cerebral and thought out than Browdigan. Yeah. And, you know, the, the few Browdigan poems that I could, you know, reel off from memory are... It's because they're funny, like right. he'd sell a rat's asshole to a blind man for a wedding ring. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole poem. Is it really a poem? <laughs> Whereas, you know, Henrietta, I discovered her on the internet. Somebody posted a, a poem about a blackbird. It might have even been her. But anyway, I saw this poem and I immediately sent her a message and said, I would love to print that. It's an amazing poem. And then you read all of her other stuff and... You, you forget that there are still poets who care about meter and scansion and all that complicated metrical stuff that makes classical poetry so mm. great. Yeah. Well, and she's held in high regard. I mean, this book won the John Ciardi Prize for Poetry, and it's also just, we just found out yesterday, it's a finalist for the High Plains Book Award. So, And her other books have also won prizes and yeah she, and she's on the faculty at u of m the she great, is the great writing school yeah so that's another interesting thing so both of these writers are not made native montanans but um certainly made montana their home henrietta grew up in north carolina and went to u of m for grad school and has been here quite a while now i think so and of course brodigan lived in livingston for a long time so well, he was from kind of, he was from washington yeah, Cockline Monster takes place in Oregon, but it's got a lot of references to Montana, and I think it was probably written while he was living here. Yeah, and uh, isn't one of the main characters from Montana? Yeah, yeah, right. I guess with Browdigan, I think of him not so much as a Montana writer, but the Northwest. Like, yeah. He really connected Seattle to Livingston and that whole aesthetic of the Northwest, kind of the plaid flannel shirt, mm -hmm. long hair, beards back in the 70s. It was, it's real 70s feel definitely, to all of this. Definitely, yeah. But not the 70s you think of, you know, back east or California with the disco and right. all that. This was the, you know... The, Keggers. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm thinking Keggers of Montana Band. The, yeah, you know, sure. The Mission Mountain, Mission Wood, Mountain Band. Wood Band. And mm -hmm. just that whole aesthetic yeah. that I don't think was going on in a lot of other parts of the country in the 70s. I mean, mm. He's iconic in that regard. But it is interesting how, I, you know, I don't know anybody who still teaches him. Mm. I don't know if people still read Routigan. But he, his name comes up a lot because he did influence a lot of people, you know. And he was a character. He was definitely a character, yeah. He was kind of a, you know... One thing that's interesting about him and that, that sort of that whole generation of writers, with it, I think they were still very uh, devoted to the whole idea of the tortured artist. Yeah. And the, you know, use of chemicals and alcohol to fuel your muse, you know. You hear the stories about Livingston from that time period, and, and Missoula too. And there's always a lot of amazing drinking and drug stories. So I don't know if... Um, I know McGuane said this, but I don't know if he said it about Browdigan, but he said, you know, alcoholism or drinking is the black lung of writers. <laughs> it's nice that it's changed, but yeah, it's, I I know when I first started writing, I, I, I actually wondered about that, you know, I wondered, well, so what is the deal with that? Or is there something to that? You know, are these, is there a point in time where 
these people lose their edge because they, if they don't have alcohol and drugs in, in their life. And, you know, I've seen enough to know that it's, that's not a thing, but. Well, it, it is an interesting aesthetic too. And I would say maybe that's what's a little different about Browdigan. And I didn't realize this in junior high when I was reading him, but you know, later when I got into college and I'm smoking pot and taking acid and stuff, and then I'm like, oh, that's what all this was. Mm. You know, that's the the where a lot of it comes from, right? <laughs> just the whole ambiance of a bunch of people sitting around and not really caring about anything, but you yeah, know, yeah. So trying to think of uh, unique ways of saying things or looking at the world. Right, and, and that's you, what he did. You know, it's easy to come up with a list of writers who uh, celebrated alcohol or you know Hemingway. Yeah, it's like for sure. I yeah. mean, really, what's it about? We got drunk and went to the bullfights. Yeah, but it's more difficult, I think, to come up with a list of writers, especially in the '60s or '70s, who where it's you know more marijuana mm. influenced. Um, they all ran out of motivation. <laughs> <laughs> right, I guess that's the difference. Is Maybe that's how Browdingham made his mark was that he was, you know, a pothead, but he had the discipline to actually yeah. write it out. Right. But, I, you know, I don't even know if he did smoke pot. I just I assume he did. Yeah, you, you can probably make a safe assumption there. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that whole drug-induced or alcohol-fueled type of writing, um, I don't know much about Henrietta Goodman, but I don't get the sense that she sits around with a glass of bourbon writing these no. poems. In fact, she seems to be, um, from the, the, some of the details of the, this collection, it seems that she was a, a product of a dysfunctional home. So she's probably gone in the other direction. She's a single mom, so I know she takes her motherhood and job seriously. I mean, there, there was never a point in my life, ever, even going back as far, as far as my memory goes, where I didn't want desperately to get out of North Carolina. Mm. I, was, oh, I mean, very much a part of, of who I am and who I was was this idea that I needed to leave. Mm. Um, and so, I, you know, it's, um, it's strange to me when I meet people who still live, you know, in or near the place where they grew up, and they're perfectly happy and satisfied there, um, because I was, it was... You know, I don't know why, but um, I wanted to go very, very badly. In fact, I remember when um, a good friend of mine introduced me to the, the writing of Jack Kerouac when I was in my freshman year of college, and he said, oh, have you read Jack Kerouac? And I said, no, um, you know, I'm 17. And he's like, oh, you should read him. And I said, why? He said, well, it'll make you want to go. And I said, well, I already want to go. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, you didn't say go where. And mm. I'm like, I, I don't care where I go. I just want to go. And he was like, oh, well, then you'll like him. When does Montana get this reputation as a great writerly state? Except, doesn't it kind of start with Brodigan? Mm. Like, isn't he that the... crowd? Probably, yeah. yeah. Like Brodigan, McGuane, Yortsburg, and 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 you know the Missoula crowd too. But I, that's, I guess what I'm kind of getting at is what is the connection between Hugo, for example, mm -hmm. and Brodigan? Like everybody thinks of Hugo as the you know godfather of Montana literature, but Maybe it's really Richard Brabigan. Like, mm. Why did people start flocking to the state mm -hmm. to be writers? People went to U of M to study writing. But, right. You know, I don't think Brabigan got an MFA, did he? Probably not, no. Yeah, yeah I wonder if McGuane moved to Livingston because of Brabigan. Or the other way around. I don't know. 
My my sense is Brautigan was the first, and then everybody. Oh, really? Yeah, I think that's what Beef told me, but okay. Unfortunately, he died a few years ago, so we can't ask. That him would that. be interesting to know, yeah, because a lot of those guys followed McGuane up here. You know, he, he and Gatz were classmates in the Stanford program, right? And uh, Cahill, I wonder when he moved. We can up. ask him. Yeah, we'll have to ask him too. So, can we read one? Yeah, of Yeah, let's read a couple of Henrietta's poems. Do you, do you want to go first, or you want me to? Be glad, man. So this one, I, I love the way this book is put together. The operative line, I don't, I'm not sure it's even a title, but the operative line of each poem on the page appears next to the page number. So this one was would be titled, if it's the title, Almost Like Death But Harder to Define. It's already a great title. It is. It's a fabulous title. Um, these are sonnets, aren't they? Yes. They are. They're sonnets. Almost like death, but harder to define, since who he would have been if he were dead was mostly up to me. I knew he read Macbeth, gambled in Vegas, disliked wine, seduced my mother, tried to make her sign his bank account into her name, she said, to keep it safe. He liked the crust of bread more than the crumb, his murky past, a mine shaft that caved in as he rose out of it. I knew three of his other children's names, Victor, Gigi, Robert, one more. His wives demanded maintenance, wouldn't submit until they found him. By the time I came, how could he find himself in all those lives? Mm. That's fabulous. I guess what I, what I love about that poem is that the title of it has the word death in it, and it is sort of a meditation on death, but the word lives really is the, the key there, and you, you realize that, you know, what is a life but all these dead people that you carry around, mm. you know, some of whom you've never met, but your grandparents, your great-grandparents. You know what's interesting in that, too, there's, there's a couple of twists that are not what you'd expect like she tried he tried to make her sign his bank account into her name that's the opposite of what you'd expect right so so what the heck was going on with this guy you know obviously there's something sketchy about him but well because of all the other wives and then yeah yeah oh yeah okay so trying to hide it from them so let's go on to the the next one is the last line is by the time I came, how could he find himself in all those lives? And the next one, the first line is, In all those lives and these, the past never makes anything from scratch. So I don't know what secret recipe my aunt followed to make devil's food cake for my mother that Halloween. She let me help her stir the batter, crack the eggs, sift the cocoa, wrote Happy Birthday Marianne in slow orange cursive. I think they loved each other once, shared my, their mother's cookbook, watched TV. My aunt put on a green mask, the witch hat she wore each year to hand out candy, screech and cackle with a terrifying glee, and we stuck plastic ghosts, witches, and bats into the cake. Three of us, three of each. Wow. That just is such an amazing portrait of these the relationship between these three women in just so few lines you know yeah and the, the relationship they had and the image of the mother as the witch and, uh-huh. <laughs> but not you know not necessarily actually evil it's halloween there's a lot of that in this book where um there's 
uh, everything's almost normal, but it's, you know, there's just like this underlying feeling that things are about to fall apart or veer off into dangerous directions. It's one of the things I really liked about it. It's like it just creates this natural tension throughout the story. That's yeah, that's a really great word for it. And that's really what attracted to me to that to that bird poem. And apparently she's written a whole series of them. Yeah, different animals for the, each letter of the alphabet. <laughs> um, but that poem is full of... The, uh, it's tense, man. Mm-hmm. All, all of her poems, you're exactly right. That's it. It's like it's about the whole world is about to come unglued. Mm-hmm. It's, it makes it sort of like reading a, a memoir, a short, intense, packed memoir. Yeah. Yeah. So did the memoir part of it came about, it sounds like, pretty organically. You just started experimenting with this form and suddenly you had all these poems that were all fairly personal and that's that's how it turned into a memoir or how did that happen kind of i mean i've always written um from a pretty personal perspective Mm. um and so that that kind of came naturally but with these i was you know looking back on my childhood looking back um at the role my parents played and at my sort of unusual upbringing and um, I realized that I really wanted to explore that in a more in-depth way than I could in just a couple of poems. So that ended up being pretty much the focus of, of um, well, it's definitely the focus of the first and second section. And then I, in the third section, um, I'm moving more into sort of, of, you know, adult relationships and thinking about how the adult relationships that we have are shaped by our childhood experiences and and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, I had never written um I'd never written anything this long that was, you know, sort of linked and memoir based, but yeah. Could you <coughs> um go over the linkage part again so each poem connects to the next poem with a common line or a common theme or Yeah, so there's this really ambitious and wonderful thing called a crown of sonnets where full lines repeat in a particular order so that you end up um, the last sonnet in the crown um, consists of full lines from all of the the 14 poems that came before. Um, And I was aware of that as... Um, Who did that? A concept. Lots of people have done it. Oh, really? um, Patricia Smith has some really amazing ones. I heard her read one um, when I was at the Atlantic Center for the Arts in Florida, and it was it was amazing. Um, but I didn't I didn't ever even try to do that. What I wanted to do was mostly, you know, when you're writing anything, the hardest thing to do is to start when you're just sitting there and you're looking at nothing. Um, So often there was something I had said in one of the sonnets that I wanted to keep thinking about or I wanted to sort of twist and think about in a different way. So that was part of it. And part of it was also just that it was easier to have a little bit. um, And sometimes that's a whole line. Sometimes it's part of a line or a phrase. Um, but that's kind and of like the Terzorima idea, too, a little bit, where you um, recycle those. Things are interwoven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I have to say, I was just talking to Corby Skinner about this, too, that between doing the Drum Woman stuff and this podcast, I've read more poetry in the last couple of years than probably my entire life previous. And... I've gained a new appreciation for 
you know, the economy of the form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said that in the last episode too, and I am totally with you on that. I've I've uh, really appreciated that about this what we're doing here because I uh, I've always loved poetry, and but I've never gone out of my way to read it. Yeah, it's like and, I've always liked the idea of it. Yeah, but, you know, I would never go to a bookstore and buy a book of poetry, but in the last year, I've bought several of them. Right. I guess we're not really sure about the connection between these two, except that Henrietta chose. Richard Brodigan to be paired with, and she likes his sense of humor. I know um, he is he is very funny at times, and that but yeah, and there's nothing funny about her. Poems. No, I don't no, think so either. No, nothing funny. <laughs> um, I don't think so either. So it's it's kind of a fun funny pairing. Um, I would s- just so highly recommend this this collection though. Henrietta's All That Held Us. Um, it's just a fabulous book. And her other two books are Hungry Moon and Take What You Want. So for the next episode, we're going to talk to Tim Cahill. Uh, He wrote a collection of, he has a collection of uh, essays that were from his uh, days as a Rolling Stone uh, writer called Jaguars Ripped My Flesh. And we're going to pair him with William Yortsberg, also known as Gats, the famous writer from Livingston whom most people, if they don't realize it, have at least seen the movie based on his book Fallen Angel, Falling Angel, called uh, Angel Heart. Yes, Isn't that the name Angel of the Heart, movie? yeah. With De Niro and Mickey Rourke Mickey back Rourke. When he, before his face got all busted up. What a, what a classic <laughs> film. It's a great movie. But the novel is amazing. I love the novel, yeah. So tune in next time for, for that episode, and thanks a lot for joining us on Breakfast in Montana. We'll see you next time. Thanks again for joining us for Breakfast in Montana. Breakfast in Montana is written and produced by Aaron Parrott and Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. Breakfast in Montana would like to thank the Drum Lemon Institute and Montana Arts Council for their generous support. Join us again next time. Till she came along and taught him